Sun Life Community Church came into being as the result of a compelling vision for a different kind of church, interested in what we call the Sun Life, experiencing and sharing the life of God's Son. Perhaps your heart is burdened these days. We invite you to allow the Word of God through the words of this message to bring rest to your soul and joy to your heart. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we know this is important. All your words, why they're firm, they're eternal in the heavens. And by your Holy Spirit, they come down to our earth to instruct us. Father, there's things we need to learn today. We need to know today for sure. And I pray that by your Spirit, we will. So guide this time. Bless your word. Bless each of us who listens to it. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this morning, to begin this message, let me tell you that when I read this passage of Scripture this past week, I was immediately reminded of a scene from one of our family's favorite movies. Do any of you have family favorite movies? The ones that you know a few lines to? You can repeat them to one another? Well, one of our family's favorite movies is the Pink Panther series of movies, those movies that feature the incredibly incompetent but nevertheless successful Inspector Clouseau. I thought I would begin this message with a short video clip from one of those movies that we could simply title the clip, Wax is Wax. Very ingenious. He pulled himself across the floor. He did? How else could he avoid the radar field? Yes, how else? Hmm. Of course, he would need a very slippery floor to do that. Therefore, the wax. The wax? Ah! Are you, uh, all right? Of course I am all right. I'm examining the wax. Have you taken a sample of this wax? Wax is wax. Oh, that is where you are wrong. Wax is not just wax. In this case, it is a clue. English wax, French wax, domestic wax. Uh, the inspector is right. Uh, have the wax tested immediately. Wax is wax. Did you catch that exchange? When Clouseau, the, to cover up his bumbling fall, says, I'm examining the wax. And then he inquires, have you tested the wax? That irritated, frustrated police sergeant says, our line, well, wax is wax. Like, why should we test it? And at that moment, our intrepid inspector triumphantly announces, aha, that is where you are wrong. Wax is not wax. There's all kinds of wax. Now, that's the exchange, the movie scene that popped in my mind when I was reading the portion in James that is our focus this morning. So let's quickly transition from Clouseau to James. Let's fast forward to the year 2022. A crime has been committed in the Church of Jesus Christ. 
Genuine Christianity, like that pink panther diamond, has disappeared. Something phony has been put in its place. And so an examination is needed. James, who's our investigator this morning, says that it's faith that needs to be examined. To which somewhat pompous Christians reply with what I'm calling today, today's erroneous assertion. Faith is faith. Meaning as long as you have some, your relationship with God is secure. And to that somewhat smug assertion, James would respond with what I'm calling today's biblical correction. Aha, I can hear him say. That is where you are wrong. Faith is not faith. There are at least two kinds of faith, and your eternal destiny rides on which kind you possess. There is good for nothing faith, and there's good for something faith. Put another way, there is faith that merely states that is, utters words. And then there is faith that truly saves, results in life change. Let's check it out. Here's the key scripture. James chapter 2, verse 14. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds, that is, no life change? Can such faith Save him? Now, that's a pretty pointed question, isn't it? It's also a most relevant one. The implied answer in the scripture is no. Can such faith save him? No. You see, such faith can't save a person from hell in the world to come, and it can't save a person from torment in the world here and now. You see, claiming to have faith and actually having faith are two very different things. How many are the professing believers who, though living lives that are pretty much indistinguishable from the unbelievers around them, when they are questioned and perhaps even challenged by a Christian family member or friend, they say, well... I know I'm not living the way I should, but at least I'm saved. How many grandparents, parents, seek to ease their troubled minds over the waywardness of a worldly member of their family by saying, I know he or she is pretty messed up right now, but at least I know they're saved. James would say to such a person, why in the world do you think that? What in the world possibly causes you to think that you, if you're saying it, or they, if you're talking about them, are saved? James would then share 
with such a person today's key declaration. It's James chapter 2, verse 17, and then linked to verse 26. Together they read this way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So James is saying that there's a kind of thing called faith that is absolutely worthless when it comes to providing salvation. To use our expression of the day, it is good for nothing faith. Now in this passage, so we got more than one verse again today, in this passage, James presents us with two illustrations of what I'm calling today good for nothing faith. Here's the first one. He says this, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? The obvious answer to that question is no good at all. So illustration one of good for nothing faith is words without Deeds, verses 15 and 16. You see, saying, be warm, be fed, but providing nothing to either provide warmth or food. Just words. Just words. You see, it's hard to wrap words around yourself on a cold night, even as it is hard to satisfy the ache of a hungry stomach with them. Those words, they're good for nothing. It's like saying to Jesus, come into my life, and then not clearing out even one square inch of space for him. Such empty words don't change anything. They do not bring salvation. For spiritually speaking, they too are good for nothing. However, Let me just tell you, those words are like gold in the devil's vault. Fool's gold for sure, but good enough for deception and destruction. The devil speaks them into the ear of a person just knowledgeable enough to know that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. Just knowledgeable enough to know that God loves all mankind just knowledgeable enough to know that you can never work yourself to heaven and that salvation is a free gift offered by God. The devil speaks those words, speaks them into the ear of one whose conscience is starting to become uneasy by the actions of a sinful life and by the absence of any of the joy or peace that Christians are supposed to have. The devil speaks them into the ear of one who has come across some of the actual red-letter teachings of Jesus regarding the requirements of those who would follow him and receive eternal life through him. The devil speaks them into the ears of those who have actually begun to question whether or not they are in fact actually saved. And he says things like this, Do not fret yourselves. Remember, you prayed the prayer. You invited Jesus to come into your life. That's all you need to do. 
Of course you are saved. And of course you're not perfect, but thank God Jesus was. And that's all that matters, right? Besides, he goes on, how could you possibly know all that you know about God's wonderful plan of salvation and about the life and work of Jesus and not be saved? You believe all those things you've heard about him are true, don't you? Well, right there, right at that point, I must jump into this demonic dialogue and share with you James' second illustration of good-for-nothing faith. It's a direct, in-the-face challenge to those whom James would say possess good-for-nothing faith. As I read, think of Jesus confronting the Pharisees. James says to them, you believe there is one God? Do you realize how many Americans we could get to raise their hand on that? How many people around the world would raise their hand on that? You believe there's one God? Yes, I do. Hey, that was one of the Lord's own uh, brothers and a leader of the early church asking that question. I'm glad I got the right answer. So, you believe there's only one God? Well, yes, yes, I do with all my heart. And then he says, good. Even the devils believe that and shudder. It's not good news to them that there's one God, one God who's eternal, one God who judges, one God who is the standard of righteousness. They know that. They believe that, he says, and they tremble. So here then is illustration two of good-for-nothing faith. It's knowledge without relationship. Big deal, James said. Even the demons believe in God, believe he exists, and believe there's only one. You see, biblical knowledge alone will never save anybody. In fact, the devil knows the Bible far better than you do. You know that, don't you? He knows the Bible far better than you do. Have you ever had him or experienced him twist some of God's word around in your mind? Did he not quote God's word to Jesus when Jesus was going through those times of temptation? He's got great Bible knowledge. He watched it being lived out. At heaven's gate, No one will be given a quiz on basic Bible knowledge. Now, there's a bunch of us, that's a a relief, isn't it? When you get to heaven's gate, people imagine St. Peter right there, just like some receptionist in the doctor's office, and he hands you out a sheet and he says, now I need you to take this quiz. I need you to fill out all these answers. If you get them all right, you can come in. Aren't you glad it's not like that? Because Bible knowledge alone, though, even if you knew all the right answers, you see, if such a quiz were to be given, the truth is, many who would pass the quiz with flying colors would be turned away. Because the question is, not how much do you know? The question is, what have you done with what you know? 
Has your knowledge drawn you into a personal relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit or not? And what does such a relationship built on that knowledge look like? So to transition here and, and use the other term of the day, what is good for something faith? Good for nothing faith is knowledge without relationship and it's words without deeds. But what is then the good stuff? What is good for something faith? Faith that actually saves you. What kind of faith demonstrates the presence of salvation in your heart? I can just imagine James saying, I'm glad you asked that. Let me share with you two of the ancients who demonstrated it. Good for something faith. Now for the first of these two demonstrations of good for something faith, James had to look back in time almost 2,000 years from his time nearly 4,000 years from this day. And he had to look back to the father of the Jewish nation, Abraham himself. And the particular story that came to James' mind and that James highlights is told in Genesis chapter 22. You could take some time this afternoon and read that whole account and really get caught up or reminded of just what took place there. But the gist of the story is that God had called Abraham and given him a promise that he would be the father of a great nation. Abraham believed, the Bible says. He believed everything that God had said, and then he packed up and he moved to the place where God led him. In his later years, God had miraculously provided for Abraham a son, even when it seemed like he and his wife Sarah could have no children. God provided a son, a miracle baby. They named him Isaac. And then God gave a directive when Isaac was probably just a young man. God gave a directive that would allow Abraham to demonstrate just what kind of faith did he really possess. He believed that God would make him a a leader of a great nation. He moved to the place where God showed him. He believed that God would provide a son even when it seemed impossible and God provided that son so there could be a family that would follow along. And now God says, take this son Isaac that you love, offer him on an idol in a place or an altar in a place where I will tell you and show your devotion to me. Worship me in that way. And Abraham believed. That was what God wanted him to do. He believed that somehow God would still work it out. But he took his son Isaac and he put him even on the altar and was ready to just take the knife and slay him as a sacrifice to God. And at that point, having demonstrated a faith that is obedient and submissive, God stepped in and provided a substitute, a ram for the son. You see, James is telling us that good for something faith was demonstrated, as we say here, by Abraham's submissive obedience. He offered up his own son. Good for something faith produces a life of obedience. 
to the Word of God. That's how you know it's good faith. It's good for something. It's good for believing the Word of God and submitting yourself to the Word of God and obeying it. Saving faith is always submissive faith. A gospel presentation that does not call for submission to Christ is a defective and possibly deadly presentation. I heard one just the other day where the preacher was seemingly bending over backwards to tell his audience that absolutely nothing was required of them to be saved, except some vague, give Jesus a chance. That was a phrase that was used. Just give Jesus a chance. You've tried everything else. What do you got to lose? Oh, my friends, I am afraid that that is a gospel presentation that the devil himself applauds. Salvation without submission falls into the category of words without deeds, a prayer with no follow-up. It's a salvation that Jesus himself knows nothing about and certainly did not ever offer to anyone. And yet it's a gospel presentation that can lead many to believe that they have a saving faith when they in fact do not. Faith that's good for something is a faith that sees Jesus Christ as the Savior and the Lord that he is, and it's a faith that is expressed by one who is on bended knee. There's no trying Jesus out. He is the Son of the eternal God. He is the Savior of the world. He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. You don't glibly walk into him and say, hey, I'm going to give you a shot in my life. You think you can do better than what I got going already? Oh, what a horrible thing. What a horrible thing. Those are words right out of the pit of hell. And there are people by the thousands in this country over the years who have been told to approach Jesus Christ exactly that way. And they speak words. And they pray the prayer. And they are told that that has secured them forever. No matter how they live. No matter what they did. Because it's all about how Jesus lived and what he did. That is not the good news. It's only good news to the devil's ears because he can say, there's another one. There's another one who's been misled, who's going to have a false assurance that they are right with God, and on the day of judgment, that's one more that'll be with me. This is a horrible thing. James was confronted with this kind of situation in the first century. And I know I don't want to distress any of us unnecessarily. But I don't want us to be involved in giving any person some kind of false assurance 
that is not worth the words or the breath it takes to utter it. James says faith that is good for something is both submissive and obedient. And that's how you know it's there. Here's the second thing. Second demonstration that James gives of someone that has good for something faith. And thinking back through the marvelous history of the Old Testament, James' mind now jumps forward about a thousand years from Abraham to a woman named Rahab. A most ungodly woman, pretty much the exact opposite of Abraham. Which lets us know you don't have to be good to get God's attention. But when you get God's attention, and when you give him yours, you put yourself on the path of becoming good, of changing to be like him. Here's this woman, Rahab. She was a prostitute. Her story is told in the book of Joshua, chapters 2 and 6, that you might want to read. She lived in the city of Jericho. Remember the walls of Jericho came tumbling down? Well, they tumbled down everywhere except right where her house was. Because she did something. Joshua had sent two spies into the land ahead of his invading army to sort of check everything out, get a lay of the land. And he came to Jericho, which was this gigantic citadel right on the border of the land. They had to go through Jericho if they were going to get where God wanted them to go. And this woman, Rahab, hid those spies in her own house. And she says to them, she says to them that she knew all about the mighty deeds that the God of Israel had done on behalf of his people. How he had dried up the Red Sea to bring them out of Egypt. How he had allowed them to destroy mighty kings already on their way. She said, I know that. We've heard that. And then she says, and I know, I believe that he is the one true God of heaven and earth. That's what she believed. And then what did she do? Based upon the fact that she believed there was one true God and these people were his people and he was leading them, she decided she would join them. She would join them. She hid the spies, a treasonous activity. She even lied to the officials who came by. Have you seen these men? Do you know where they are? She protected them, provided cover for them. And she told them that her heart was with them. And when the army came in and when the walls were destroyed and the people were were absolutely massacred, In God's judgment, they were all put to death, but Rahab and her family. And the writer of Joshua's book says, and she lives with us to this day. She lives with us to this day. You see, Rahab's, here's the good-for-nothing example, Rahab's life-threatening identification indicated that she possessed good for something faith. She identified herself with God 
confessed his, who he was, allied herself with him and with his people, even if it might have cost her her life. Now that's a demonstration of what good for something faith is like. Her life-threatening identification. So we say they're good for something faith produces a life of identification with the people and with the program of God. Count me in. I want to be one of you, such a person says to the people of God and to God himself. Genuine saving faith. Good for something faith shows itself in tangible, unmistakable ways. It shows itself in submissive obedience to the word of God. The teachings of the Bible become a person's guide for life. Submission to the spirit becomes a daily reality. God is guiding my life through the very truths of his word. It shows itself in an uncompromising identification with the people and the program of God. I got to tell you, it kind of was just distressed me to hear this preacher give this message even as he says, you know, I'm pretty much an evangelist. And then he goes and tells them that basically it didn't matter at all if they ever showed up for church ever. He says, I'd like you to show up for church. I don't like to preach to an empty room, but really going to church has nothing to do with it. My Bible says to those who belong to Jesus Christ, who actually are saved and are part of his family, my Bible says, do not give up meeting together. It's a vital part of the Christian life and of the Christian faith. And this gospel that says, man, there's nothing more to it than what Jesus did on the cross. All you got to do is believe that and you're good. Wow. I'm not sure what Bible he's reading. What he's doing is following a salesmanship manual. So today's key analysis, just got to get to this, our time's about up. What kind of faith do I possess? We each need to ask ourselves that all the time. What kind of faith do I possess? The good for nothing kind? Just words only? Or the good for something kind? The kind where the words of faith lead to actions of faith. You see, the appeal that every concerned parent or grandparent or friend should make of one who is practicing that good-for-nothing faith because we don't know if they're saved or not. They might be saved thanks to the gracious, merciful goodness of God. And we're just right here at one point in their life and maybe... Ten days or ten years from now, they might be a shining example of a sold-out Christian to Jesus Christ. But in the moment where we see them living like they know nothing of Christ, they're living like they couldn't care less about the principles and plans of the Bible. When we're in that moment, it's not our job to decide are they saved or not. Only God knows if any of us are saved, for sure. We're all capable of deceiving ourselves. But what there is, there's a universal appeal that can be made. It doesn't matter if the person that you're appealing to is saved, in fact, or not. 
And that appeal says this, and sometimes this is the appeal we need to make to our own hearts. It says this, give your life to Christ. Give your life to Christ. If you are ever in a position to share the the gospel message to anyone that wants to be saved, you don't tell them there's nothing they need to do. They can't wash away one of their sins. You're right, there's nothing they can do with regard to cleansing themselves. But there's something they need to do to get the cleansing brought to them by Jesus Christ. You give yourself to Christ. You surrender yourself to Christ. You repent. You acknowledge the life you're living is nothing like the life that Christ calls you to live, and you surrender yourself to him and ask for grace to begin to live in a different way. And my Bible tells me you do that and Jesus himself sends his Holy Spirit into your life and that Holy Spirit will teach you, will strengthen you, will guide you, will encourage you. But those who pray to prayer who maybe even God has on the books, I don't know, only God knows. They have no strength for living. They're, they're resisting everything God is saying and doing. It's a miserable life. And to such a person that your heart goes out to, you say, give yourself to Jesus. Oh, I know I'm saved. I didn't ask you if you're saved. You're not surrendered to Christ, though, are you? See, they can't say, well, uh, at least I'm surrendered to Christ. No, you're not. And if you're not surrendered to Christ, do you realize there's really no absolutely good reason for you to believe you're saved? And there's nothing that you are accomplishing in this life that will matter at all to your eternal condition, even if you are saved. It's just worthless. It's meaningless. Give yourself to Christ. His words will never pass away. And so that's the universal appeal. It... it, applies to everyone who is somewhere wandered off and and gotten wayward and maybe worldly and and maybe caught up in all the things of life and, and you're just saying to them, the call of Christ is upon us all. Give yourself to Christ. Even if a a loving parent or grandparent could say, I I remember when you were saved. I remember when you, you maybe you prayed that prayer with me. That's why my heart is so broken when I see you now. Because you're not surrendered to Christ. Your faith, your faith needs to turn into a life. See, if they're not saved, such a step, surrendering to Jesus Christ, will bring them to salvation if they actually are saved by God's amazing, unfathomable grift of grace, such a step will move them in the direction of genuine Christian living. In either case, they will become possessors of good-for-something faith, and their life will show it. Now, I'm not trying to get you to think 
because I don't think this way about myself, that my life is the goodest faith there could be. We're all needing every day, every moment, by the Spirit of God to surrender ourselves to Christ more and more and more. But the very fact that we know we need to do that is encouraging. And the very fact that the Spirit of God reminds us quickly when we're stepping away from what a truly surrendered believer, what a truly Christ-like life looks like, we're encouraged by that. Hear the Spirit's voice. Hear the words of the Scripture today. Don't you or anyone you love be lulled into sleeping, into the kind of sleep that says, but at least I know. You do not want your eternal destiny hanging on a, but at least I know. I'm living like the devil, but at least I know I belong to God. That's pretty flimsy evidence. Don't put your assurance upon something like that. You just say, here's what I know. I've given my life to Jesus Christ. I have asked God to forgive me of my sins because Jesus paid the price for them on Calvary. Nothing I could do to make up for my wrongdoing, but he has died in my place, and I trust him as my Savior. I've asked God to forgive me for my sins, and he has sent me the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit witnesses to me all the time that I really do belong to God, and he nudges me every day along the way that I ought to go. And he encourages me. And I love him. And I do know when I sin, I feel rotten. Just say, hopefully none of us has sinned glibly and happily for quite a while. But to say, when I sin, I feel rotten. I know I've violated the Savior's uh, standards, I've grieved the Spirit's heart. I've grieved my own heart. Because good for something faith is a faith that that works things that please God. So we come to the end. We just say that. Final thought. Handling faith. You wouldn't think of all the things James has told us we need to learn to handle that faith is one of them. James never knew, really, American Christianity. It was bad enough in his own day that there were people saying words that they didn't really mean, saying words that didn't react, result in any kind of real life. But if James had ever been exposed to American Christianity, where saying the words is what we're encouraged to do and all we're told we need to do, he probably would have written a lot more. You see, faith needs to be handled carefully because there's a faith that's nothing and there's something called faith that's everything. Let's make sure the faith in our heart is the one that's everything, the good-for-something faith that submits itself obediently to God's word and to God himself and then goes through life just obeying as best we can and speaking as truthfully as we can. Handling faith in a God-honoring way means believing and obeying the word of God and loving and linking ourselves 
to the people of God. And I could say to the program of God as well. Just love what God is doing in this world. Love what God is doing in your life. Love what God is doing in, in bringing you into a family of faith. And say, I believe it's real. I believe the Almighty God is behind it all. And I'm trusting in his son absolutely. And in his spirit to guide me. Definitely every day. Oh, our Heavenly Father. I can sense some of the angst in James' heart when he wrote these words. Because that certainly represents uh, some grief in the Spirit's heart himself. To say, how can human beings get to such a place? How can human beings believe that just saying something is all that's necessary? God, who is a God of action. God, who spoke the word and worlds came into being. God, who sent the living word, Jesus Christ, and, and a sacrifice was made and a resurrection was experienced. How could they ever believe that, that words alone are not real faith? They're just words about faith. So, Father, I pray that you'd lift the veil of deception that's fallen upon so many, even wanting to be sincere preachers of the gospel, wanting so desperately to, to get someone to make a decision for Christ that, that they actually misrepresent Christ. Because it's easier to sell the misrepresentation and to declare the truth of one who says, if any man would come after me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross, be ready at any moment to put to death the things in him that do not belong to his new life. And then follow me. Follow me in fellowship with my own spirit. Father, those are the words of life. Settle them in our hearts. Give us boldness whenever we need to declare them. And give us the sincerity that every day we would embrace them. For I ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope this message has inspired you to live the sun life together with us. If you are near Apple Valley, California this weekend, we invite you to join us in person Sunday morning or through our live broadcast. All the details are on our website at sunlifecommunitychurch.com.